1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: And we're back on Southern Remedy for Women here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I am a surgical pathologist. Um, I'm here today with a guest who's very near and dear to me, uh, both professionally and personally, Dr. Joe Pressler. He is a pulmona- pulmonary and critical care physician at Greenwood LaFleur Hospital in Greenwood, Mississippi. And it's always so great to have you here, good Dr. Morning, Pressler. Good morning, Allie. It's good to see you again. So last time you were on, we were talking about lung disease, because obviously that's a big part of what you do. Right. Um, it's kind of a double sort of field. But we, we got to talking, and Dr. Owens was here that week too, unfortunately, she's out this week, but um, we got to talking about issues around end-of-life decision-making Um how s- there are still so many people who don't have plans or things set out, don't have discussions with family members. And though this is not maybe a pleasant topic to talk about, no one wants to talk about, about probably the most difficult situations that folks often see themselves in, but it, We really wanted to have a show to talk about uh, bringing awareness to people, how empowering making these decisions ahead of time can be, how easy it is to put these in place, and really to try to remove some of the barriers to why this happens so infrequently, because we're all going to die. Right. Right? I mean, that's 100%. Every single one of us. That's That's right. right. I'm a pathologist. I know this. I come in too late. You're the guy that helps keep this from happening, but there are times when it is just inevitable. We just don't know when.
3: Well, it, so it's always inevitable. Well, but, before we but, start talking about sure. it,
2: tell us about yourself, where you're from. I know you've been here several times, sure. but we want to remind our listeners.
3: No. Uh, so I am, uh, I, w- I consider myself a local guy. I grew up in Macomb, Mississippi, who, uh, where I believe they have a, a, a station that I'm listens sure. to us, hopefully. Oh, um, yeah.
2: No doubt. We let, I, we let them listen in Macomb. Yeah.
3: And... Um, Went to undergrad at Ole Miss in Oxford and then came down to Jackson and did all of my medical training here, medical school, residency, fellowship. And so the fellowship was, uh, as you said, it's kind of a dual fellowship. There's the pulmonary aspect, which is is lung specific. And then there's the critical care aspect where we take care of patients in the ICU at their sickest. Um, So
2: it's a subspecialty of internal medicine. That's correct. Just for the um, listener's
3: clarification. That's right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so you know, as as you know, we finish training when we're about fifty, and then we start <laughs>
2: get a real paying, job finally. Then we start paying our
3: loans off, and about seventy no retirement, where loans are paid. Um,
2: it's a good way if you want to postpone growing up. You know, if you just don't want to. There's really always be there's responsible. always training, and, and
3: even even when you're done training, still, there's still there's school. still exams, and yeah, there's I'm still, still school. Yeah. there's still boards, and all that good stuff. That's so, right. but you know, it, I kind of. Um, I go back and forth between what I really enjoy about my job and, you know, most what I was told in my in my training was uh, most people go down the track of pulmonary critical care because they enjoy the uh, the fast pace and the intensity of of the ICU. uh, And then they kind of develop a love of pulmonary later, which which I can see and I I have seen. uh, And during parts of my career to this point my focus was on lung cancer, and so it was much more down the pulmonary route, uh, but still closely tied into you know a, a terrible disease of, of cancer that ultimately uh, can lead to death. And, um, and so there's still lots of end of life issues that we discussed with patients down that route as well. Uh, now my focus is more in, in the intensive care unit, and, and of course people will come in extremely sick uh, with uh, just overwhelming infection or um you know for us it's not ne- necessarily so much trauma but it's a it's a lot of infection um and, and, and overwhelming word, infection mm-hmm. and then and then in stage uh chronic disease processes so heart failure that's at the end stage uh lung disease that's at its end stage liver or kidney disease at its end stage and then there's there's always patients uh, that have multiple comorbidities. They have multiple issues that can be at the end stage, and so we see a lot of those patients in the ICU. And and um, you know it's important uh, it's important for everybody involved in that process to have uh, the right perspective. And the biggest thing is to have open dialogue. And by all those people, I mean the patient themselves. Um, and a lot of times the patients. Uh, in, in our ICU, are not able to make those decisions because they are so ill, they're incapacitated, and, and it's up to the family members to then make the hardest decisions of their lives for the lives of their family members. Um, and so it's important that, that the patient uh, has expressed their wishes and talked to their family members about these are things that I um, – these are things that are important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the biggest thing that I think has to be discussed is what's important to me. Is it, uh, is it quantity? Is it how much more time I have in this world or is it the quality of life I have for however much longer that is? Um, and if those things are discussed and not just mentioned, but discussed, uh, with family members, um, over time, then then it makes everybody more comfortable when those decisions have to be made.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Can't be understated. And anyone who's ever been in the ICU, either as a patient, unfortunately, or had a family member, there's a lot going on in there. These are really sick folks. It's an intimidating place to be. It is. Um, so thank you for what you do for being in that situation every day. I mean, that's it's an interesting field, and you kind of have to be a special kind of person to do it. So thanks. We have a caller on the line already. We have Bernard, who's calling from Gulfport down on the coast. Hey, Bernard.
4: Good morning. Good
3: morning. Good morning, Bernard.
4: Um, I have sort of an uh, overarching question that has just uh, a few components underneath, but they're all connected. So uh, it's really not that long is, um, you know, you speak about the importance of people um, knowing what your wishes are. I'm uh, somewhat familiar with the um, state-authorized portable orders um, that vary from state to state, which is a form uh, to help uh, sort of delineate whether or not you want uh, drastic measures, whether or not you want tube feeding, antibiotics, etc. cetera, uh, if you're incapacitated. The sort of components of that is, Uh, Are those forms accepted if it's held in an electronic copy, like on your phone? Um, What happens if, uh, for example, like if I'm in Jackson, I normally get care at St. Dominic, but I get taken to the ED, uh, not conscious, at Baptist? Um, When, uh, sort of how is it uh, deliberated if there's disagreement between what is known in my records with what my wishes are and then what the expressed wishes are of my uh, family members and then lastly what considerations does a physician have in trying to negotiate what they consider to be um an expressed wish even if it's uh, an ex- expired SAPO or, or advanced directive and the feedback from the
2: family well
3: that's an easy question i'm just kidding yeah. <laughs> this is so, very complex s- yeah. so i you yeah. know even without any introduction from us this this question alone uh gets down to the crux of of exactly what I wanted to come and speak with uh with Allie and Michelle about and 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 with the community about is because that one or two three questions all together in one is uh is the basis for you know, national discussions and debates and and it's the crux of everything. and the real simple answer is there is no real simple, simple answer, but that's why it's so important to talk about these things so uh, so pieces of of your question um, you know as long as if there is a form uh, that, yeah a lot of times these forms that you're you're talking about are um they're notarized so you know i mean electric copy electronic copy of these forms as long as it has all the the information and and and, and appears valid legally um should hold when, you know regardless of of how you obtain it from you know a phone or an email or or whatever um I think the tricky part about those forms, and I don't know how how much you know about them or, or how much the general public knows about them, but um, they can be very specific, but they can also be very vague. And my concern with those are, um, sure, they can, in an instance where a patient cannot directly tell you what my wishes are, um, they can have a checklist of certain things that they don't want for prolonging life, like you said, feeding tubes and antibiotics um, and, and aggressive measures for resuscitation. Um, what I've seen in my experience in the unfortunate part of that is um, those forms and, and the, the paperwork, any legal document, It never covers what's actually going on um, because there are just so many nuances with every patient that gets ill. Every patient's different. Every patient's illness is different. And, um, you know, the, the legal system is set up so that they can supposedly answer every question have have an answer for every detail well,
2: they're doing the best they can they, probably. They, and we don't want to discourage people from going no, through this no, exercise no right? not at
3: all not at all i think it's important but what i do want to under i do want everybody to understand is uh, from a patient standpoint and the family standpoint is um you're never going to have a document that outlines exactly what's going on with you whenever you go to the icu um, and w- what is going to be uh, required for your treatment and um any as as any lawyer can draw up a document any other lawyer can go in and pick it apart too and so then that's where you come into the the um the delicacy of okay well uh a a family member brings a document to me and it says these certain things well how are these interpreted because these are interpreted legally, but not really medically And um, I think the medical and legal languages don't necessarily mesh in a lot of instances and it's left up to it's left up to discussion at that point. And then that's when it's so extremely important that the family members and the patient have open dialogue and have a background as far as, you know, as you said, uh, Bernard, an overarching view. Because a lot of times that's what we're missing is we have little details of this, 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 and this. But it's the overarching view that I think we really need to look at. I
2: think you're reinforcing what you said before, that discussion and communication, open communication. You know, having the document is great, and I encourage everyone to do that. But in addition to that, having these discussions, even when you're not that sick. I mean, I've told my husband, you know, because you never know. I mean, I'm young and healthy, but... I don't know what happens tomorrow. Right? So I think it's never too early to have those types it's of discussions. Not
3: because so God forbid, for instance, you are extremely healthy. However, what happens if there's some kind of uh, acute trauma that that incapacitates you? Um, and this happens even even young heard, people can have these, these random stories yeah, yeah. can have a random stroke that leaves you incapacitated and you are completely dependent, bed bound. Uh, completely dependent on supportive care, whether or not that's tube feeds or, or just rolling, turning, cleaning—all these things—and then the question for your husband would be: Well, what would Allie want? Does she does she want to continue like this? Would she have wanted to continue like this, uh, or would she say, "You know, this is not the quality quality of life that that I envisioned for me, nor the quality of life that I would envision for my husband and my children." Taking care of me, um, and and these are things that there's there is no judgment passed in any way, or should not be any judgment passed on any way. Some people and some family members say, if you know, as long as I have a heartbeat, whether I know what's going on or I I can hear my family or interact with them, as long as I have a heartbeat, you keep me going. Okay. Yeah. And some people just say that's not the life. And
2: people change their minds. And
3: people change their <laughs> minds. Um, and the really difficult parts here are when, um, when the when the patient has not made those desires known, and the family has to make that decision on their own because that is it is gut wrenching. It is unfair. Uh, it becomes extremely selfish. Uh, on on many parts because and I have to explain this to to family members all the time this is this is not you have to go in making this decision not based on what you want but what do you think your family member would want because if we ask ourselves do I want my mother to die no I, I don't I don't want her to selfishly I want to keep her around as long as possible now the, one of my favorite phrases, and it's just because it hits home so much, is there's a lot of things in medicine that we can do. But just because we can doesn't mean we should. Uh, and from a physician standpoint, Bernard, this comes to the last part of your question. From a physician standpoint, boy, that that really pulls people a lot of different ways because, um, you know, there, there are some physicians who are, are scared of the legal system and they will do absolutely everything to try and make sure that everything is done by the book so that they are not, um, they are not maligned for doing anything incorrectly. Then there's other physicians that, that have, um, that have more of a, a, they have more of a, a sense of a perspective, a of perspective case. of look, I know what's best for this patient, um, from a, From a care standpoint, it doesn't quite align with, um, you know, it may not align with the family members perspective, Um, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. And, you know, that once again, that leads into um,
2: a whole nother discussion. it, it, It
3: does, because so do no harm. Do do I feel it's it's these moral and ethical questions. Do I feel like I'm doing this patient harm when I know that I will never get them back to the functionality they were before. Um, and, and I think
4: I'm, if I could speak personally sure. for a second, I'm, I'm sort of on the, the you know, if, if, I'm, if there's a poster child for palliative hospice care, that it, they could put my big ugly face on it because, you know, if, if I'm, you know, incapacitated and not able to make a, a decision, you know i'm not interested in, in any intervention at all so uh and my family is aware of this so if i get in a car wreck on i-55 and i'm taken to the icu and i arrest and you know the inner the this is, you know if we uh perform uh, acls and give them some pressors, i can bring them back like i'm like i know that's hard you know my family loves me They'd, it'd be an easy thing to chomp at but i I'm not interested in that at, at all. And so even though, you know, I, they're fully aware of those, of those wishes, uh, you know, I, I know it gets sort of murky with you needing to perform informed consent. Like this is what we're able to do and sort of how that, that's an enticing thing because most people want to save the ones that they love. But for me, if I'm not able to make a decision, then if I end up, um, Taking the bus, as we say, and I want to be able
3: to take the bus. Well, Bernard, look—you've given us a lot to talk about, and we're going to continue talking about it. I think we have to take a break, but we have nobody else on the line, uh, and so—are you, as soon you t- want to
2: be the host? Yes, I'm. A, a I'm going to host
3: on? this. I'm going to run this thing <laughs> because I'm. I'm. You've you've really got me. Uh, you've got me in my in my zone right now. Southern Remedy so.
2: for Women with Doctor Joe Pressler. Yeah,
3: but no, I think these these are things that we need to continue talking about, and I don't want to drop that off just because we have to take a break.
2: Thank you for Is your call, okay? Bernard. I, yeah, absolutely. We're gonna we're gonna keep talking about this you've brought up some great points Bernard and thank you for sharing uh, your personal uh, feelings about this about your own care I think that that's very courageous and we definitely appreciate that. the number is 1877 MPB ring that's 18776727464. you can also email us at women at mpbonline.org this is Southern Remedy for women on MPB think Radio.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: And we're back on Southern Remedy for Women here on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about making decisions about end of life um we're hoping to reach uh, folks that uh, perhaps if you haven't had these discussions with your loved ones or with your friends whomever are the folks that end up would potentially end up being your advocates if you were had were to become incapacitated, if we could encourage one person to have that conversation today, I think we'd feel pretty good about it. So we encourage everyone to to think about that. So we wanted to have this show to uh, can't underscore how important these things are, not just to you, but to you, the folks that end up having to uh, care for you in, in this kind of a state. So, in anyone that's had this experience with a loved one, or is currently going through this, or anyone that has any questions or comments, our number is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or one eight seven seven mpb ring You can also email us at women at mpbonline.org. I am Dr. Allie Brown. I'm here today with friend and colleague, Dr. Joe Pressler, who is a critical care expert. So he is faced with these situations frequently, actually, in his job. It's a heavy job, and we're glad he does it. We're going to go straight to the phone lines. We have a few callers on the line. I think first we have Norma, who's calling from Boonville. Hey, Norma. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for your call.
5: I'd like to bring up a national organization called Compassion and Choices. It was formerly Compassion in Dying. And there's a good bit of legislative action going on across the U.S. concerning this. And it is what has often been called pejoratively um, assisted suicide, which is not a phrase I like to use just to let people know what I'm talking about. Um, if you have never been at the bedside of elderly parents um, who are dying and are ready to die, it's hard to comprehend, perhaps, something that sounds this extreme. But I just wanted any listener who's interested in such to know that there is. You can just go, you can Google compassion and
2: choices. And learn more about it. Thank you for bringing that resource to us, Norma. We really appreciate it. Have you heard of that?
3: I, I actually have not. Mm-hmm. So, and, and just for full disclosure, I, I actually work as, um, as a, a physician uh, representative with uh, a hospice company. Um, so, you know, th- this end of life, the, the uh, comfort care all these all these different phrases that we have for it are they're extremely I, I hold them dear to my heart, um and they're they're extremely important to me, which is why it's also so hard sometimes to see a patient languishing on a ventilator and with with full support that we kind of know medically there there's not uh this is not gonna come to a good end. Uh and, and part that's why I see part of my job is not just to um, to start medications and to run codes. But it's also, it, it really is to assist family members with understanding this is where we are in the process. We are very close to death. It's, it's something that um, the, the family has to come to, to grips with and, um, and, and start to come to an understanding with. Uh, but, but as far as, yeah, I mean, a sticky subject with, the, with what has been labeled assisted suicide uh, in the past and, and that, that will ruffle feathers and we'll get people. Yeah,
2: that sounds awful. Yeah, yeah. it
3: sounds awful. And, um, and de- I think depending on the situation, it it is awful. However, um, lines get blurred at certain points, which is why it's important to listen and discuss these things and not just assume that one, one situation is, is the same as the other. And, uh, one treatment is the same as the other. And, you know, there's there's a difference between assisted suicide and um, allowing a comfortable
2: comfort care, yeah. Uh, yeah, comfort
3: care and allowing a comfortable death um, and, and a death with respect, uh, which Absolutely. is
2: dignity what, is a huge thing dignity
3: is a huge thing. And once again, I think the, the thing that we have to understand is just like you said before, it happens to 100 percent of us. And a lot of the fight that we have and, and a lot of the, the struggle that family members have is that struggle to let go. And and I think sometimes you just have to help them stand back and understand this is going to happen. You have no choice about the fact whether or not your loved one is going to pass. What you do have a choice of is how it happens and the dignity, respect, comfort that they are allowed to pass with.
2: Well, thank you for your call. We're going to stay on the phone lines and go to Gail, who's calling us from Long Beach. Hey, Gail. Hi, how are you doing? Happy Friday. Oh, same to you. Fridays are awesome. Yeah. <laughs> almost um, as good as Saturdays. Go, go on.
6: Almost. Almost. Uh, what I'm calling about is one. I've been a nurse since, you know, the earth was built. But uh, I've also spent like eight years doing hospice care. But in my travels, I have seen where the legal department of the hospital convinces or pushes the hand of the physician to comply with the family's wishes and not to live in will, such as, like, tube feedings and things like that. And if they have it spelled out, it's there, black and white, has been notarized, doesn't want a tube feeding, but life does. And uh, unfortunately, you know, ethics
2: is overruled by legal.
3: Well, uh
2: I think these are some of the things that you spoke about' exactly being very what we're talking about complex is, yeah. is
3: is pulling and teasing apart the the ethics, the morals, the legal ramifications, the medical intent, the wishes of the family, the wishes of the patient, honestly, the wishes of the caregivers because uh you know, like it or not, the nurses and physicians that are taking care of the patients they have some skin in the game they they um, they put time and effort, and um, and and you want them to. You want them to have uh, some compassion and some emotional investment in what's going on. And
2: they've been, they've kind of seen it all. And they've also, also seen it with other patients eyes, before yeah. and
3: experience. And uh, yeah, I agree. You know, I have never. I will say, I have never, um, I have never been pressured by any uh, hospital system administration, anything to do. Uh, anything medically that that I did not feel was appropriate and I also am firm enough in my beliefs that uh, if it is legally documented and I believe that the that the patient knew what they were saying when they when they outlined this, I will stand to my guns because the ultimate last decision is the patient's. And when we ask family members what we think, what they think we ought to do when the patient's incapacitated, I have to remind them this is not what you want. This is not what you would want to do. You have to put yourself in the patient's place and what would they want in this situation. Yeah, and and if, it's, if it's documented in, in, in a legal document and written down, yeah. then, then that's it.
2: It's kind of physician-dependent is what it, I'm it, hearing you say also. A lot, a lot of factors, multifactorial. Thanks for your comments, Scale. We appreciate your call. We're going to stay on the phone lines and go to Terry, who's calling from Tupelo. Terry from Tupelo, a little uh, alliteration there. Hey, Terry.
4: Hi. Um, I actually have a positive, uh, upbeat comment. Did I understand it's, that uh, you worked in the ICU at UMC?
3: Uh, yes, I have. Uh,
4: I have to give a shout out to those guys. I had a heart attack pretty young. I was fifty one. Had a heart attack. Was in ICU for like three or four days, and I felt like I was being taken care of by my mother. I mean, they were all so wonderful people, and and just you know treated me with so much respect and dignity, and and it's just a. It's just a really good feeling when you're down like that. Have people around you that, that really want to help you get better.
3: Well, I know they would appreciate that. So, so after my training that was all done at UMC, I also spent six years, a little over six years, on staff at UMC, and I I will just um, I will echo your your comments there. You know, I still have lots of friends that that work in in all of the the ICU levels, uh, the towers. Uh, physicians and nurses, and and they are fantastic. Uh, there's no doubt about it. They do a a wonderful job. It's a hard job. It is a hard job, and yeah, yeah. it it can uh, it can skew your perspective mm-hmm. some. You know, people people get kind of hardened sometimes. But, uh, y- you know, you have to detach yourself emotionally at times. Uh, but but yeah, absolutely. I want to echo that. The I haven't worked there. I have not uh, been on faculty at UMC for two years, but uh, but still have very good friends and know know the quality of uh of medical providers that they have at every level and, and they are they're fantastic and i'm glad that you uh you brought up your good experiences yeah. there
4: thanks well, terry. you know i don't want to go back
2: well they're oh, definitely capable of taking
3: care of your uh, of you if you had to go back so yeah. i appreciate you saying that
2: yeah thanks thanks a lot terry i think that's something that maybe as physicians and healthcare providers, we don't hear we don't so often, we don't feel so. like
3: we hear it uh, as much as we would like, um, and it's not about that. You know, yeah. that's the thing is it's not about getting the praise from Correct. from patients. However, you also don't understand how much that means to the to. Yeah. To people, I mean, the nurses and patients, devoted their,
2: particularly these nurses in the ICUs. I have to give them yep. a huge shout out. They are at the bedside constantly, What yep. um, it's like one nurse to two patients, you know, it's a very complex. <laughs> Dep- fa- well, Depending. ideally, yeah, um, don't get me started on that. But
3: yes, that's <laughs> ideally what it should be is yeah, one nurse to two patients. They Thank really you, devote
2: Hailey. their lives and, uh, and and really go through a lot with these patients. So thanks for your comments, Terry. I'm going to look to my producer, Jay. Are we taking a break or staying on the phone lines? All right, we're going to take some more calls. Next, we have Janet, who's calling from Texas. Give me a second, Janet, to mention the phone number. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven MPB ring. Hey, Janet, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you. Honored to be here talking to this fine doctor about a very important subject.
6: Absolutely. Um, a little history about myself: I'm a retired firefighter and medic. And oh, thanks um, for your service. For Twenty years of my life. Um, I saw family members suffer with this very issue. We would transfer them to the hospital, and it was very painful to watch from a caregiver's standpoint. Uh, And then, of course, when my father went through um, his end of life, it was even more difficult because my parents did not get the documentation. Um, So my mother, who had a chronic disease, um, she made sure that she had the documentation uh, she uh, listed a power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, and she had her advance directives. Everything was in order, which does not make it easier for your family members right. as far as the emotional aspect. However, uh, you know, it, in a manner of speaking, legally, it makes it easier to hand those documents over to the, the doctors and the other caregivers and say, these are her wishes. Well, yet and still, you, you know, you're going to stand by your mother's bedside and be torn. But it does give the family something to lean on legally instead of having the, the, the family member say, no, that's not right. And nobody ever told me. And so it will give you a safeguard.
3: That's, that's right. So, you know, in, in any of those situations, especially as we talked about earlier and what you're mentioning is in the acute instance, you're you're already you've got all these thoughts going on. You've got the the preservation of of self and and family member and and grief starts to come in when when you know what's coming. Um, all all right. these emotions are going Everything through. Everything is
2: heightened. Everything yeah. is
3: heightened, and that is the worst time to be asked to make, to make the, the, the decision biggest decision of right. your life. It is. It is the worst Absolutely. thing. So so like you said, it takes. It doesn't take any of the emotion away, but it takes pressure away from that family member when they can hand that paperwork over and then they can get to their business of grieving mourning healing being with their family members all all of the things that are the most important for them Um,
6: absolutely
3: yeah that's that's a comment With
6: you wholeheartedly sitting by your 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 loved ones bedside and providing them the comfort to know that they are not alone Uh, but at the same time lifting the burden from your shoulders to say, uh, I think this is what she or he would want. Right. Um, You know, my son is just now starting college, but he already knows my wishes, and I do have the documentation already. Not that I plan on going anywhere anytime soon, but God (laughs) knows I have no control over that, because as you said, or the PA that called in earlier, you know, we're all going down that path. And no one knows but the Lord above when we're leaving.
3: Well, so, it, and I think you know, it's no it coincidence.
6: Hurt to be prepared.
3: Yeah, I think it's no coincidence that people in your field and people in the medical field that we've discussed, Allie and I are talking off air about it. We are very clear about what we want. We we've know because it, yeah. we've seen yeah. it, and we don't want to have to go through these things, and don't want our family members to have to go through exactly. these things. Uh, that that we've seen them. it is it's an awful it's an awful process.
2: Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for your. I appreciate what y'all are doing. Thanks, Janet, and we appreciate you and uh, thanks for your call and for your perspective. Staying on the lines for one more caller, we're going to go to Catherine, who's calling from Greenwood. Hey, Doctor Pressler, Greenwood. Yeah,
3: Catherine. What's up,
2: Catherine? Hey, hey, hey. I'm not calling to complain about the hospital.
3: Well, (laughs) do I know you, Catherine?
0: I don't think so. Okay, Um, my sister is elderly, um, and is in a local nursing home. I'm giving a wrinkle to all of these wonderful things about having the documentation in place. She has a DNR at the hospital and at the nursing home. She was put into an ambulance because she was non-responsive. Her heart stopped in the ambulance, and they started her heart. Um, <laughs> so you can have all your documentation in place, but if it's not transmitted or there's some kind of hang-up in that, um, we're now back into this horror.
3: Right. And it's, it's, and, yes, ma'am, it is a horror story that I've seen played out over and over and over. And I agree, there, there is no perfect, there's no perfect answer because, like you said, you had the documentation that you needed at both places. The the problem is, um, and and this is what we've talked about. Just like when, just like with your family member, you kind of go into into save mode um, if you're not ready for it. I think a facility is going to do the same thing, and and the EMTs, you know, the default action is action. It is not inaction. And
0: despite the
3: DNR, despite it, it even it, it's just the natural reaction, and I think that's. That's um, I don't know if that's a problem that we need to solve. You know, it's yes, it is. Okay, well, well, what I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, the reason we do that for for some people, and I'm not speaking for myself. I'm I'm trying to speak for for people that are doing this when I wouldn't, uh, and trying to do this non-judgmentally. But you know, the thought process is we're going to save lives, um, and. And when you don't really think about what that means and when you don't heed uh, the the documentation like you're talking about, that leads to – it leads to a lot of, of heartache and trouble down the road. I don't know what happened with your sister, but I do know stories um, that – you know, and I think probably after maybe this next segment, we can talk about the the differences in DNR, DNI, yeah. full code, ACLS. I think that's important to get to um, you know, just was, so everybody knows.
0: It was just a mess
3: up. It was just a mess up. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The paperwork was all in order. Yeah, um, but yeah. the ambulance is saying they had a piece of paper that said full code on one side and DNR on the other. She's never been full code, so we're trying to yeah. figure out how trying they to try and figure out that. where that was.
3: But but like you said too, and and I will tell you, you can have. Four pieces of paperwork that say DNR, and you have one outlier that says full code, and well, everybody is going. It
0: never existed. Right, right,
3: right. But but my point is, if it did, I everybody's going to everybody's going to err on the side of full code, and that's just And that
0: I understand. I just want people to be aware. Make sure. Yeah, that that's not hundred percent correct.
2: Right. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Thank you. And That's a really important part, Catherine, and we really appreciate your call. Uh, thank you for calling. We're going to go ahead and take a break. Um, the phone lines are open now. The number is one mpb ring That's one eight seven seven we will come back and maybe talk a bit about what is a DNR. We're throwing around some acronyms and things like that. And uh, maybe there's some nuances that folks uh, may not understand. So we want to make sure to provide you with that information. Uh, this is Southern Remedy for Women on MPB Think Radio.
1: MPB Think Radio podcast.
2: We're back on Southern Remedy for Women here on MPB Think Radio. I am, oh, that was kind of a weird thing I just did. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm a surgical pathologist, and I'm here with our guest today, who is Dr. Joe Pressler, who is a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Greenwood Lafleur Hospital in Greenwood, Mississippi. We have some callers calling in, but I'll give you the number. It's 1-877- MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Before we start going to callers, let's talk about DNR, DNI, all of these different things. Um, Today, we are talking about end-of-life decision-making. And as we've said um, at several points throughout the show, we strongly encourage everyone in the listening audience to have this conversation with uh, your loved ones, your dependents, um, with your elderly parents, perhaps, about what your wishes are, what their wishes are, just to stimulate some sort of a conversation um because this is something we're all gonna have to deal with at some point, either as a uh, that we're all going to die or that we'll have loved ones that will go through these these types of things. Not a not a pleasant subject by any means, but it is super important. So uh Dr. Pressler, let's talk about these different categories before we go back to the line. John and Debbie, we're coming to you.
3: Sure. And I think one thing to point out is that it, it's maybe more prevalent now because as as our um as our medical knowledge increases and our technology increases we are we have the capabilities of of prolonging and continuing life and organ function much longer than it used to be your kidneys don't work well we can put you on dialysis your lungs don't work well we can put you on the ventilator and breathe for you um and and some of these things can be done indefinitely until an another issue um limits your life at that point and and because the, the the further along we go with technology, uh, I think sometimes the bigger a hole we dig ourselves in um, from a medical standpoint. Um, so uh, DNR, DNI, uh, ACLS, full code, no code—all these terms that you may hear uh, in the hospital. Uh, so we'll start with ACLS, which is advanced cardiac life support, which is just the idea and i think it's important that people understand where this came from and what the actual um uh, the idea is is when the heart stops for some reason whatever reason that is and that is whether that is an acute uh, medical issue related to the heart or separate from the heart there's actually kind of two pathways one that is a a cardiac specific or heart specific um uh, irregular heart rhythm or the heart just stops uh, from a from a heart failure standpoint versus the heart has stopped because of some other issue going on, whether or not there's not enough oxygen, whether or not there's too much acid built up in the body, uh, whether a lung has collapsed, all these different things. But the basic idea was started when we say, okay, um, this 45-year-old relatively healthy man out at the ball game has collapsed uh, from a sudden heart attack and we need to have a process by which we can resuscitate him uh, get him to the hospital in order and time so that we can intervene and the whole goal is to um, you hear about the chest compressions chest compressions uh, the goal is that the heart is not working and what we need to do is uh, we're compressing the chest, beating for the heart so that it pumps blood through the body. Um, we need the blood pumped through the body to get oxygen to all the body parts, specifically the brain. Uh, and um, and we do that until we can get that patient to a place where intervention can be made and the heart can be restarted, basically. And, you know, the idea was... Um, that this can happen in in a patient with a heart attack, okay? What we have really extended that to now is somebody who is chronically ill in the hospital and is extremely ill and their heart stops, um, then we resuscitate them. Uh, And by resuscitating, we mean chest compressions, we mean giving medications to restart the heart, get it in an appropriate rhythm, give them blood pressure medications, And in the process of somebody's heart not beating, they're not breathing either. So we put a breathing tube in their uh, mouth, into their lungs, and put them on the ventilator. So now we have this whole list of things that we can do and we can't do. And medicine has gotten to the point where we give you a menu and a checklist of, well, these are the things that I want, these are the things that I don't want. And in general, it really doesn't work that way. Um, We really, in my mind, need to go back to the idea of, if this patient is in good health and, um, and we can do something to intervene and bring them back and fix that issue, we need to be all on board with it. If, if this patient is already in the hospital with chronic medical conditions and is extremely ill, that's when we need to have serious discussions with family members about um, if their heart were to stop, this is a natural process that goes along with their illness that is a chronic illness that we're not going to be able to fix. So at what point do we say we need to let this patient pass naturally? This is, and however you want to phrase it, this is a natural death. This is God, you know, taking him. This is his time and God saying this is it. Um, however, you want to phrase it. At what point do we step in and so say? this is
2: the DNR.
3: This is the DNR. So do the not D-not resuscitate. resuscitate. Okay. Some people say, "Well, I want to be resuscitated, but I never want to be on the breathing machine."
2: That's a DNI. That's a do DNI. Not do not intubate. Okay. The,
3: the problem there is um, people th- don't think about it as an acute intervention. They think of it as, "I don't want to be on a ventilator the rest of my life." Right well, maybe we can intubate you and get you uh, back to a place, you to a place mm-hmm. where you can be functional again. And so all those, there's all those little nuances that don't fit into legal documents.
2: We're going to go to the phone lines. We have a couple of calls. We're nearing the end of our show. John from Greenville is calling. Hey, John.
1: Hi. Hello. Hey, John. Hey, we just Jenny. have a
2: couple minutes. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fine. Thank you. I've been listening very carefully to this discussion. Um, I'm a retired uh, Christian school principal, and um, I think of it like this. Um, coming into the world, uh, you are assisted in a transition, a transition from uh, in the uterus to the world, and you became an independently written person. I see end-of-life similarly in that there is a need to help people transition to another, as the doctor said, natural state. I suggest and I wish that there was a program, you could call it Life Transition Facilitator, somebody who is trained, licensed, and understands the medical, the physical, the emotional, all these pieces, codify it, certify them. Come up with something because what I'm hearing and what I've heard over the years is different pieces of this have been handled by different people.
3: Sure, and John, and, and John, kind
1: of followed up. So that's my, that, that thank was my Yeah, point. John, I completely
3: agree with you. And there actually is something though. So there, there is a fellowship now uh, that is a palliative care fellowship where where uh, physicians are specifically trained in uh, discussing end of life issues. Um, how we achieve that. Uh, how the family copes with these things. So there, there actually is, and it is a licensed. Um,
2: and I have to give a shout out to um, hospice nurses. Yes, so I had personal experience with hospice nurses. Just such a valuable ex- experience, and they were unbelievable. We're, uh, well, we're gonna go and go to Debbie, who's calling from Wesson. Sorry, we're having to squeeze in these calls real fast. Hey, Debbie.
0: Hey Deb. I mean, hey, uh, whoever. <laughs> hey me. Yeah. Uh, Self is the word here. Um, For people who are taking care of other people or family members at home and end-of-life stage, my strongest, most valuable suggestion is to write things down, the time and medicines and what they've eaten or just just anything. Just write it down because as time goes on, it all merges together. And Mm -hmm. if you have other people who are coming in, whether home health or hospice, to assist you at home, you need to be able to tell them what you did and when.
3: Sure. Well,
2: that's great advice, Debbie. I we, I did that. I remember when I was uh feeding my babies and stuff, so it's kind of yeah. a similar thing. If you're taking care of somebody, you got to write down what you did, that's you know, right. I gave them this medication at this time. So thanks for that input, Debbie. Good Dr. Day. Pressler, we have just a couple minutes left. What are we gonna encourage folks to do?, uh, what are we gonna leave our listeners with today?
3: So, I think the most important thing is talk to your family members. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know we 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 hesitate to do it because it sounds morbid, but it it can just be a a loving discussion and a a simple discussion to start off with of what what are your wishes? If this were to happen, what would you want? um and, and it's, you're not going to have all the answers for specifically what happens with your family member when they go in, but if you have a general idea of their wishes and how they want to, as uh, John had said, transition uh, from to, from another, this, natural to natu- like another natural state, another natural state, which is inevitable, then uh, then be ready for those because um, it's when you're unprepared for that to happen that it's the hardest.
2: Yeah, I think it's never too early to have these right. discussions. They're not pleasant. Sort of rip the Band-Aid off and do it, you yep. know. So guys and gals out there listening, uh, do it tonight. Do it this weekend. Sure. So if we can encourage uh, some people to do that, it's so super important. Thank you so much for coming, I as thank always. I
3: appreciate us talking about this. Always a
2: pleasure. I think we could do <laughs> 10 shows on this. I'm, I'm sorry we couldn't c- continue on with it. So um, Dr. Joe Pressler. Thank you for being our guest. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. Today's Southern Remedy for Women was produced and engineered and call screened by Jay White. He did it all. Um, Dr. Michelle Owens will be back with us next week. Uh, Thanks for being with us and join us next Friday at 11 for Southern Remedy for Women. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio.